Thank you so much for being here with me today, Mike. I really appreciate your time um, and coming on here to tell us a little bit about yourself and more about your farm so everybody can learn what you're doing out there. So uh, if you'd like to start off, please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your farm. Tell us your story. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, my name is Mike Peterson. I'm the Farm and Conservation Director at Kinlock Farm in the Plains, Virginia. Um, we're in Fauquier County, uh, about an hour west of D.C. We're situated in a pretty unique place where we see uh, a mix of, of, you know, there's longtime residents, longtime community here and some some uh, newcomers to the area, people coming out from D.C. and wanting to get away from, from the city life, too. So our farm here is uh, situated um, on about 3,000 acres of, of land, and, and of that, we have around 1,000 in production. You know, some most of that is grazed in, in perennial pasture, and then we have about 100 acres or so that's just in hay production. And I've been here at the farm for about a year, just over a year. I've been farming for 12 years in total. Um, before that, I was actually in the culinary industry and worked in kitchens and restaurants, and my family has been involved in farming for a long time, but I got I got back involved in farming through food, which is maybe not a common path to it, but it's, it's all relatable, and I'm still in food production, just in a different form of it. So here at this farm, um, a lot of my responsibilities and, and roles here involve, you know, kind of the intersection of farm and conservation and, and why that's important. And this is a new rule that was created by the family to help to oversee and bring bring a few different worlds together, because I think it's important that we we view those two terms and those two philosophies together, and they're not siloed into two different production models. And so we take on the responsibility of using agriculture production as a form of conservation. So everything that we do kind of comes back to a relatable form of conservation and ecosystem processes and things like that. So on our, I've, I've gone a few different directions in the answer to your question there, but on our on our acreage in production, we have um, a, a herd that's been, been fluctuating in size over the last few years for um, our farm manager, Kevin, who unfortunately couldn't be with us uh, today. He's down in Southern Virginia at a farm bureau event. He's been here for, I think it's about 18 years. Um, and when he came, he started converting a commercial cow herd into a registered uh, Aberdeen Angus herd. Um, so using genetics from the 50s and 60s as a foundation to build a, a, a registered herd from that. So we have, um, we've just put our bulls in for our fall breeding and we're breeding about 220 calves this season. So we fall calf here, calf once a year. And we have uh, also, as a part of my job this year, we've just started to um, get into direct marketing for a long time. They were selling live animals and genetics and bulls and cows and heifers. So changing the business model a little bit to get into direct marketing, our, our grass-fed beef, which is why we came to you all um, a short while ago for your certification as well. So actually, let's let's touch on that real quick. So what had made you make the decision to become an AGA certified producer? And do you feel that that makes a difference to your customers when they look at your package? Sure. I think, I think you know, labeling and certifications in general is is, is a finicky thing. So I was looking for something that's clear and straightforward. You know, there, there's a lot of terminology and things that can be just confusing to the, not just the consumer, but to the producer. And I didn't want to be in a situation where every decision we have to make, we have to go back to look at the rule book of the certification to see if this is allowed or, or if this isn't. We are in the certified naturally grown program as well. And we have been for um, probably eight or nine years uh, for the cattle program. Um, we have an apiary on the farm too. I didn't, I, I failed to mention that in the intro, which is just re-upped in, in the CNG program. But, you know, looking at the AGA certification, it was, it was, I think, as I touched on, it's a clear and straightforward representation of things that we're already doing, you know, and I, I, I know that, um, and in looking at certifications, I didn't want it to be something that we have to make wholesale changes to accommodate. We're doing we're doing things um, in a sound way, responsibly, and have been for quite a long time. So I just I wanted to look at something that fit our production model. That could be a clear indication to customers of of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So this was something that you know can tell customers that this product has as uh, or this beef our, our beef has been fed 
all grass its entire life. It hasn't been treated with any antibiotics or, um, you know, other chemicals that they have to worry about. And the whole, you know, grass-fed, grain-finished or grain-fed debate is this is something that kind of puts that to bed and we can we can stand behind this label and say that we're we're 100 grass year round uh you know with no exceptions and it's also you know to stand behind a label that has uh you know can ensure that everything sold through this label is is, is came from the u.s so there's not any other um you know not coming in from elsewhere but it's supporting uh, america's farmers thank you thank you so much i, I appreciate that uh that review that, that means a lot to us one of the things i read on your site that really touched me was uh you had a line about putting your animals in the right place at the right time for the right reasons can you tell me a little bit about what that means to you on the farm yeah and it, you know a lot of that comes back to um our grazing planning process and and not just not just turning the cattle out in the spring and opening gates until we're we're out of grass but looking at each area or zone of our farm and to say you know this this first year that i've been here was kind of a an audit year is what's here and why is it here and what are the conditions like and we did a round of soil samples this year uh, we also got involved in uh, our year zero technically of the ecological outcome verification program through savory so it's a lot of baseline monitoring and metrics so but the, the point about putting your animals in the right place at the right time for the right reasons is to is to match their nutritional needs their stage of development their growth their finishing um, you know whatever stage they're in putting them in the pasture at the right time when the vegetation is at the most nutritious state you don't always hit that and that's that's fine and there's other things you can do to to bounce around that but it's having the goal of, of having our animals in the right place at the right time with sound reasoning so we want them if we want them to go through and and you know provide more trampling activity um, we can change our, our grazing density and grazing rotation to accommodate that if we have an area that needs a second round of rest we can skip that in the next rotation knowing that we're you know can come back to it the next time if we're stockpiling fescue for winter feed there's certain areas of pasture that we can set aside for the summer to get back to it after we have a hard freeze so it's just having an understanding of the growth pattern of the whole farm um, and, and the stage that's uh, a lot of our, our cows are at in lactation and conception and calving and weaning and finishing. But I think just overall having a grasp of, of where everything is at all the time and having the intention of putting their putting them in the right spot when they need it. And I think this really touches on on this other line from your website, which is there's so much more to grass-fed beef than just grass and cattle, mm -hmm. right? All these intricacies that you're touching on. You also yeah. had something that I wanted to ask about called your 643 philosophy. Explain that to me and what, what that means. Yeah, and that was I was something else that's not mine by any means or that's not ours, but it's something I was introduced to through Alan Williams and you know a presentation of his that I went to and we referenced that on our website too. But it's that is it's I think there, there's specifics of it you can get into, but the kind of a summary of it is that you're it's sort of related to the last point that you made of putting your animals in the right place at the right time for the right reasons, but it's also having an understanding of ecological influence that these ruminants have on the landscape too. So it's it's ensuring that we have, you know, we know why we're doing something or or you know your context. We're not going to be overly disruptive to any of our fields. We're not going to till down break ground. We're going to leave cover on the soil all the time. We want to keep living roots in the soil. So again, we don't want to till it to disturb and we don't want to kill anything. You know, you can't have uh, scenarios where you have multi multiple species going through um, a certain area. So you're, you're mixing up not just the diversity of animals, but you can mix up the time of year that you're grazing a field, you're grazing density. There's different ways you can get around mixing it up if you don't have multiple species. And then so the and then looking at ecosystem processes, which is what, which is why I was so, you know, I wanted to go the route of, of Savory's EOV program too, is because it, it gave us metrics to, to kind of measure ourselves by our what is the outcome of our practices in the land? What's the real-time uh, feedback that our land is giving us from the management practices that we're putting 
into place. So there's you know four ecosystem processes, which include uh, uh, you're looking at diversity of forage, not just forages, but diversity within your soils. Could be diversity of species of animals that you have on your farm. Are you completing mineral cycles, water cycles, and energy flow are the other two out of that four. So are you are you retaining water? Is the water that's falling onto your farm running right off, or is it is it you know is your water retention good enough that you're holding the rainfall that we get in your soil and it's causing your pastures to grow and flourish? And then energy flow is just uh, to me that means you know photosynthesis. Are we leaving enough green cover on our on our plants that the plants continue to photosynthesize and continue to grow? So are we we're not grazing everything down to the dirt all the time, but we're leaving green material for the plant to to fully regrow and recover, knowing that what we see above ground is also having an influence on on what's happening below ground. And then there's you know so I think the six four three philosophy just comes back to an overall understanding that every decision that we make and every management decision that we make with our cattle has. A compounding series of uh, effects on our land. So every not every decision we make with our our cattle and grazing management is siloed into that decision. But we're gonna, you know we're going to see consequences or positives of, of decisions that we made next year and, and five years down the road. So just taking into account those philosophies into our decision making process helps to keep kind of a long term perspective on on all decisions that we make. There's certainly some snap judgments and the moment judgments that we have to make as as a part of farming, but when possible, we like to to weigh you know certainly our our drastic decisions fairly heavily and have something to check that back to. And you know, and speaking of your uh, your flourishing pastures, that actually fits very well with the fact that you guys were recognized by the Virginia Forage and Grassland Council as uh, the outstanding forage producer of the year a couple years ago, and that's. Uh, it descri- described as given to exceptional producers who implement innovative forage and grazing management practices that lead to enhanced production quality, profitability, uh, wildlife habitat, and improved soil conservation and water quality. You know, how, how does that recognition help you to bolster the importance of your holistically managed process to produce these grass-like foods? Sure. And that was, that award was, was pre-me. So I can, I can explain it and talk about it, but that was, um, you know, that was very much Kevin and, and the team that's been here for a long time and not just Kevin, but the, the family behind it too, and, and kind of setting those philosophies into place a long, long time ago. There's, I didn't mention it in the intro, but the family has, has been here since the, the 1960s. So it's been in, you know, the land has been in a form of production for over 60 years now. You know, it's gone through several you know, iterations of, of what it is and why it is, but there's always been a core of, of conservation um, behind, behind everything that they do. So this award, um, you know, in particular, it was, it was a recognition of, of farming and conservation practices. So it's all of these things are kind of related to, to everything that I've talked about so far, but it's taken into account that we're responsible stewards of the land, um, that we're, we're caretakers of responsible caretakers of the livestock that we have, and that we're also, you know, involved in the community. And I think for, for this award in particular, there's, you know, there's a lot of work that we've done with our local soil and water conservation district for um, stream exclusions. And, uh, you know, with that, there's there's fencing to fence the cattle out of streams. And that's a, that's a whole other subject you could spend a lot of time on involving water quality and um, living additions for cattle and things like that. So they're not wallowing the creeks and stream beds and eroding you know, vegetation that's there. So we have about 300 acres in riparian buffers and just over 30, 33,000 feet of stream bank protected through these exclusion programs. So it's an important, you know, I think the the overall theme is that it's it's not just the, the amount of acreage that you have, but you can have conservation-minded practices, whether you're on a half acre or whether you're on 50,000 acres. It's having the right mindset and philosophy to, to you know, harness the responsibility of the amount of acreage that you have and implement that into your landscape. So for us, it was, it was an understanding that we have these conservation practices in place. There's been, um, you know, kind of rotational managed intensive grazing for quite a long time, which fed into the the metrics for this award and the, you know, the genetics that we're using to implement these practices are, are 
kind of all fit into what we're doing too, because the the Aberdeen genetics are, you know, from the 50s and 60s are ones that were designed to to thrive on a grass only diet. So we're we're not looking at it to throw a, a square peg into a round hole and wanting to get into a grass based system with Holsteins or you know something like that. But even though that is possible in the dairy industry, so maybe that wasn't a, a good example. But at any rate, it's using the whole context of 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 what we have and why we have it to to responsibly steward this land and make it a better place than um, how we found it. And I think every decision that we make kind of goes back to 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 check the boxes of, is this, you know, something that's going to improve the, the life or the quality of the cattle that we have? Is this something that's going to improve the ecology of the farm? Is this something that's going to impact water quality? Um, is this something that's going to impact impact wildlife habitat? Um, there's a, a program here that's been growing for quite a while that there's a few organizations involved in, but it's a, um, this year they just took a big step with some outside funding and, you know, it's other incentives too, but it's the um, it's a Virginia grassland bird incentive program um, that's kind of co-run by uh, three other organizations, but it's at, at any rate, it's educating and incentivizing farmers to deviate or, or at least think about um, grassland bird habitat as they go about implementing hanging schedules and, and grazing rotations. And I think that frame of thought, um, you know, came to me about 10 years or so ago when things that we were sort of already doing and, and timelines that we already sort of had were had a positive impact on grassland bird habitat. And I, I look at whether it's whether it's birds or um, water retention or carbon or water quality or, you know, forage species diversity or insects, they're all indicators of management. So do we have do we have a variety of grassland birds? Do we have a robust insect population? Are we retaining water in our pastures? Are we storing carbon? And if not, then we can go back to check on those. But at least if we have you know, a, a growing or at least a, a net positive on some of those, we can look back at that and say, then some of our management practices and decisions that we're making are having a positive impact on those. So all of that going back to the award that you mentioned, it's, it's kind of encompassing all of those things into one. And not only concerned from you guys for the land, not only concerned for the animals, but also concerned for the community. Sure. Um, seeing that you guys have that rich history growing, growing the farm, while also focusing your employment and community connections on improving economic and racial dispar disparities that are prevalent in the region. How does that legacy look today? And how do you see it connected to the work you do and providing availability of grassland products to your community? I think, you know, and that goes back for 60 years, that was, um, there was when when the family first came here. There was, I think, at one point there there was over two hundred people that worked here. But um, as we as we set a business model for how we wanted to sell our beef, market and distribute our beef, um, I had experience with this with with a few other farms and setting up a direct direct marketing model. Um, but I, I didn't want to go. You know, we have such a vibrant community here and a supportive community in Fauquier and the surrounding counties of people that are are truly seeking out something something different that's that's can be nourishing and nutritious that they trust where it came from and how it was produced um and in some respects covid probably helped that as as grocery stores and supply supply chain issues were rampant local farmers were there with product um and some of that flows into our our farm store that we opened up on a, a site um it's a farmers market site that's been open for i believe 24 years that um the farm owner owns that site too and she helped to, to start that market and so our farm store is there and knowing that that was already a, a hub for uh, a local community agriculture and we wanted to stay entrenched and embedded in the community um, and, and kind of and, and start small start here and to do our outreach into the community for our, our sales and distribution and I, I i didn't want this model where we're you know we're needing to go fetch dc sales and and bring our product elsewhere or ship um, although shipping might come at a later date but our the way that our production is now we can focus here, um, you know, our, our sales here in the community and, and the folks that are here. So 
And, you know, from a staffing perspective, we have guys that are here um, or, or people that have been here for 30 years, 40 years, 20 years. Um, so there's just a, a long retention of, of loyalty. And um, I think just a, a reciprocity of understanding and, um, you know, an appreciation for a, a dual appreciation for having this beautiful place to work. And then from the farm owner um, and our employer that we have, um, you know, a, a beautiful place that we can contribute to. Now, something I'm going to go off script here for a minute, but something that you had mentioned to me is that your background was working in food. So you you saw probably a lot of sides of this issue in, in sourcing, right, from restaurants, getting the products maybe that they realistically want to have on their plates and saw the real life challenges that I guess you would go through sourcing from some smaller producers and some of the challenges folks go through. What policies, like what, what do we need to be focused on as, as a nation to make it work? you know, for the small independent grass-fed producer to be profitable, to have to have a chance in the market, to be able to to have folks sourcing from them, like restaurants, like retail, you know, what's missed? You know, I, I think we're going through, it, locally, we're going through some of those logistics here because there, there's always going to be, not always, because that, that's a long time, but <laughs> at least in the short term, we have, there's slaughterhouse logistics, there's distribution logistics, um, and there's, there's uh, economy of scale, right? So, we have here, we have some of these producers that are in land access is another big one, especially here as we see um, influence from, you know, kind of DC and Northern Virginia on, on the price of real estate. So the access to get into land and, and being able to rent land for, for young and upcoming producers is, is a challenge as well. But there's a lot of barriers. Um, but I think in, instead of focusing on the barriers, we can focus on what we know we do well. Um, and what we as producers know that we do well is we know that we, we care about what we do. Um, we're authentic in how we produce it and how we sell it. We love to talk. We love to educate. You know, I think that's one of the benefits of having a farm store and having not necessarily being behind a wall of certifications, but being open about what we do and why we do it and being a little bit selective about the certifications that we have and why we have them. So I would rather, I know it's not always feasible, but I would always just rather have a conversation than put a, you know, a, a different label on my, on, on the product that would, that would certify one thing or another. So we know we do those things well. What some things that we can't control are, you know, currently here we have, you know, an 18 month backlog on slaughterhouse dates for the slaughterhouse that we used. So we, in, in March of next year, I'll have to book all of our 2024 dates. And, and some of these slaughterhouses are at a place where they're not even accepting new producers. So these producers that want to get into the field, how do they get their animals to market? You know, we have here locally, we have a couple of uh, livestock auctions. So worst case scenario, they can go and sell their live animal, but they're getting it for pennies on the dollar compared to the return that they can get um, when they're selling meat directly to the to the consumer. So it's it's both ways. So we know that the producer has to get these things to market. We know that the consumer has to demand a, a, a different way as well. So if if the consumer continues to have the, the concept of where they're doing all of their shopping in a big box store, and we have a producer that has the concept of the only way I can get it to market is if I go to a farmer's market, um, that's kind of a lose-lose on both sides. There has to be a middle ground somewhere. So, you know, from a producer's perspective, there's there's talks of cooperatives or banding together to at least you can have, if you have five or six producers in one area that can have, you know, instead of sending one animal a month to market, then you can have, you know, you can have a set of producers that are having, um, you know, five animals a month, but it's coming from five like-minded producers. So you have 60 animals a year instead of 12 or something like that. So if you band together to get somewhere close to that economy of scale, that would help. I know, you know, you're, you're comparing that to thousands of animals a day out of a plant in the Midwest, which isn't totally replicable. And, and land access is a, is a big deal. You know, we, I, I've, we've personally been through before I was here, been through issues of losing leases and um, kind of leases that we know were going away and weren't able to replace those with something else that made sense. And, you know, at one time we were renting, um, I think my wife and I were renting about 780 
acres in a county nearby and lost half of that when one lease went away and we couldn't find something to replace it. And um, the business we had, we ended up deciding to close down for that reason and, and other other reasons associated with it too. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interest to get in, but they you know I don't know what the success rate of farmers that that are starting a business and you know ten years down the road they're still there. Um, but there's there's land access, there's continuing education and and business uh, consulting that'll help a lot of these producers too, um, which which maybe isn't there because there's you can have a lot of um, flashy ideas when you get into this, but then you have a reality check a couple of years into it. Um, the internship and apprenticeship programs are great, but something you know something more robust is needed too. Um, the distribution has been uh, it's a frustration for a long time because we have these these uh, individual farms that are going to you know there could be 40 different farms that are going to a slaughterhouse to drop off their animals there's 40 different farms are then going to the slaughterhouse to pick up bring the meat back to their farms and then we're you know some of them are all kind of going back the same direction to distribute and you know different ways that they distribute so there's a lot of inefficiencies within the system and I think one thing that big ag has done right is they've gotten the efficiency of it down really well and and some of that is to their detriment with um, you know quality and nutrition of other things and, and the ecological impacts have been sacrificed but you know there are there are some some good cooperatives out there that are doing some really great things and they're involved in, in AGA too, Thousand Hills or, or White Oak or a couple that come to mind that have that have some sort of scale um, and are reaching a broader customer base and are doing it responsibly. So there are ways, there is a challenge, but I think if there's there's a lot of things that farmers are good at, obviously one thing that we're good at though is that when our backs are up against the wall, we persevere. Um, so it's going to take a lot to for, for someone to back down and to, and to not continue, but it has to take, um, you know, mutual effort from the consumer and from the producer to meet somewhere in the middle that makes more long-term sense um, with, with solder and distribution and logistics and business planning. With a little resilience from everyone, we can get there, right? That's the, that's the, that's the idea. Yeah. So uh, probably the most important question on the podcast, tell us, you know, tell us about your uh, your products and where can we get our hands on them, most importantly? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, from the community perspective, you know, we want you to come to us. So <laughs> for anybody that's local here to the Northern Virginia region, um, we're located, like I said, about an hour um, outside of D.C. Our farm store um, is on is on the farm. Um, we have a website, kinlockfarm.com, um, that we keep uh, an inventory of, of what we currently have, um, but nothing, um, we're not shipping anything right now. So we, we, we're not... Uh, uh, run into buyers club models, um, but we want you to come to us and see the beauty of where we are and why um, why we love it here so much. Um, and I think that gives you know folks the opportunity to step onto the farm and get a glimpse of of what we do and why we do it, and ask questions. And we like face to face communication. You know, we we respond certainly through email, and we're we're on a computer now. But you know, to to put your phones down and look up every so often and have a conversation. Um, with someone is important to you. So long-term, who knows that that's a, that's a business model that we'll, we stick to, but for the time being, we, we appreciate and value um, in-person communication and phone calls and talking and, and just being humans with each other. Thank you so much, Mike. You guys heard it here. If you're uh, on the East Coast, only a short shot from DC, go check these guys out. Definitely go give them some love online. I know they're on Instagram, on Facebook. They have a website. Go check them out. Make sure that you get everything you want to see about Kimlock Farms. And Mike, again, I, I just can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.